Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. This episode, as you can probably guess from the title, is a very special one for us here on the Coffeehouse, and that's because it's our 100th episode. Da-da-da-da! Woo! Before we jump into today's topic, we hope they'll allow us to walk down memory lane about the fun times we've had making this show. Prior to starting this podcast, we hosted The Coffee House as a Sunday morning classical music radio show on the Colorado State University student-run radio station, KCSU. Back then, we went by the DJ names of... Caribbean Java. And Earl Grey. <laughs> <laughs> However, after graduation, I was moving away from Colorado, and so we could obviously no longer host that show together, so we schemed to make a podcast version instead. So we launched in the summer of 2016 and have been posting every two weeks since then, with breaks being few and far between. Over the years, we've really enjoyed bringing our histories and analysis to our listeners, but after a while, we thought it would be fun to spice it up with other formats of episodes or topics more tangentially related to music. This started with our concert chats and in more recent iterations has manifested with musical inventions and more recent developments. Like the Conductor episodes we did with Jeremy Cuevas. If you haven't listened to those, those are some of my most favorite that we've done recently. Go back and listen. Many of these episodes, in fact, have been most rewarding for us to produce, and we're very proud of the final products and the great feedback we've gotten from our listeners. So for those of you who have been listening to us since the beginning, or if you're just starting to listen to the show, we want to give you a very heartfelt thank you for taking an interest in our cozy little corner of the internet. And now, without further ado, we'll go on to this week's topic. In honor of it being our 100th episode, we're actually doing a throwback to one of our very first episodes by looking again at Antonin Dvorak. This week, we're honing in on Dvorak's life right around the time when he was composing Violin Sonatina, Opus 100. 100. And if you'd like a more comprehensive picture of his life, we recommend listening all the way back to episode 6. The Sonatina we'll be looking at was written in 1893, and we'll be talking about Dvorak's life during that particular time period. During this time, Dvorak was actually serving as the artistic director and professor of composition not in his Czech homeland, but rather in New York City. In approximately the decade leading up to this period, Dvorak had slowly been accumulating international fame. He had traveled many times to England and had even been awarded an honorary doctorate from Oxford. He also frequently traveled around the main European continent to present his new works. Just before being offered the position in America, Dvorak had been on holiday in Russia to visit his good friend Tchaikovsky. And so his European fame finally reached the USA, and the president of the National Conservatory of Music, Mrs. Jeanette Thurber, invited Dvorak over. 
Upon accepting the position, Dvorak moved to America in 1892 with his wife and two oldest children. And much like he had become fascinated with the folk music of his own country, he strongly believed an American musical sound should be found amongst its own folk music. The city of New York was bustling and chaotic, so Dvorak liked to take holidays to scenic American regions. He also felt particularly at home in Iowa as the city of Spillville had a significant Czech population. In September of 1893, Dvorak summoned the rest of his children from Czechoslovakia and then took his whole family on a summer road trip to Spillville. And can't you just imagine Dad Dvorak wrangling his six young children through the attractions of America? It would probably be very similar to scenes we have here in our modern-day road trips. <laughs> Notably on this trip, the Dvorak family visited the Minnehaha Falls and Niagara Falls. Even though it was vacation, Dvorak was never able to completely stop working. Apparently, the American wilderness and beauty inspired little bits of melodies that he would write down to be incorporated into composition at a later time. By the end of that September, Dvorak had returned to New York and back at teaching. However, from November 19th to December 3rd, 1893, he started working on the little sonatina we'll be looking at today. Dvorak stayed in his New York post until 1894. However, due to money issues on the side of the conservatory, he made the decision to leave his post and head back home. So we obviously chose to look at this particular piece for this episode because of its opus number of 100. Upon completion of the work, Dvorak wrote to his friends and his publisher, quote, And now I hereby announce to you that, with God's aid, I have just completed my hundredth work. It is interesting that he himself would dub this as his hundredth work, because in actuality, it ended up being published before his works that were labeled Opus 98 and 99. So he must have had things brewing that were not yet known to the world that he had intended to finish first, but this sweet little piece and its speedy turnaround time of less than a month won that composition race. <laughs> Dvorak also wrote to his publisher that the piece was to be dedicated to his two oldest children, Otilka and Tonik. In the first published edition, the dedication was made more broad, simply to, quote, my children. Perhaps so the four youngers would not feel left out. Dvorak had really written this piece with his son and daughter in mind, and they likely gave the premiere of the work in a concert. Otilka was 15 at the time of publication and was a pianist in the family. Her younger brother, Tonik, was a 10-year-old violinist. So in the grand scheme of the classical music canon, this piece ranges on the easier side. However, accomplished performers still hold it in high regard, partly since it is a classic work of a well-known composer, but also because, even in the simplest of pieces, if they are well-written, there is great technique needed for phrasing and emotion. And certainly, this piece does not sound childish. In fact, many listeners familiar with Dvorak's other works, particularly the New World Symphony and the American String Quartet, will hear similar melodic motifs in composition techniques. For this analysis, we thought it would be fun, since it's our 100th episode to analyze the significance of the 100th measure of each movement. So let's get started off with the first movement, of course. Here is the 100th measure of this introductory movement. It's actually ideal for this analysis because it represents a turning point in the piece. But how did we get to this measure? 
First off, we have the violin playing a dotted eighth sixteenth with two quarter notes. And this motif has been used extensively throughout the movement, both in the beginning as a fanfare, even though the dotted eighth is omitted, and in moments of transition to harken back to the beginning of the piece. The piano then plays an upward chromatic scale in triplets. The triplets come from an earlier section of the piece where theme B has been presented. And the chromatics come from the phrase that has just been leading up to this measure as Dvorak has been changing the chords in the piano by individual chromatic steps rather than a real chord progression. And then what this measure 100 brings us into is essentially the bridge of the piece before the introduction is brought back in triumphant and glorious iteration. Fascinating how a whole bunch of measures from a piece can come together to form just a single snippet of an idea that we find in just one measure. So now, moving on to the second movement. Unfortunately, this movement is short enough that it doesn't actually have a hundred measures, but it's written in 2-4 time, so we'll be looking at measure 50, which encompasses the hundredth beat of the piece instead. The chords in this measure have a pentatonic sound to them. The whole theme of this movement seems to be very folk song inspired, and Dvorak associated the pentatonic scale heavily with folk songs. The earlier parts of the movement are very song-like indeed. Also in this measure, the piano has taken on the role of the melody with the violin playing 16th note accompaniment in the background. The notes are written in a very high octave, giving a bell or bird-like quality, which Dvorak could have been invoking to represent his time spent in the American outdoors. The violin part in this measure, and many measures around it in this section, is simply 16th notes going back and forth between E and D. Though these are technically moving notes, it actually gives somewhat of a drone effect since it's so unchanging. Drones, too, were a part of the American folk song style that Dvorak described. Going into the third movement, here's our 100th measure there. This movement again doesn't quite have a hundred measures, but what it does have are repeats, 
So, this 100th method doesn't really come as far into the piece as you might think. However, we can still glean powerful knowledge from our analysis. It's actually the same as what we heard at the beginning of the movement. And so we get powerful insight into the form of this work. This movement, being a third movement, is a traditional scherzo and trio, meaning it has an overarching form of ABA. However, there are microforms within each of these larger sections. We can tell the scherzo, or A section, which this 100th measure belongs to, is also an ABA, since we get the same material at the beginning as we do here at the end of the section where this measure takes place. Then there's a slightly different B theme heard here. As you can hear in the trio section by this performer's interpretation, the movement seems to encompass Dvorak's feelings of American fiddle music. And even in our 100th measure, even though it's more straight-laced than the trio, the little eighth notes are actually a fiddle-like flourish amidst the surrounding quarters. And now we're on to the fourth 100th measure. This 100th measure is like the first movements in that it is the start of a transition section. Prior to this measure, the music had been driving and intense with 16th notes and staccatos. However, once we reach this measure, even though the tempo hasn't changed, it's as if the music hits a wall, because suddenly, it's all quarter notes. The downward motion in both the violin and piano parts is part of the motif Dvorak had been utilizing up to this point in the movement. We hear right at the beginning, the melody begins with the same downward motion. And this whole slower feeling transition is really a summary of the section that we had just heard previously. Dvorak has been utilizing various dotted 8th 16th note rhythms throughout this section. And we hear this come up right after our measure 100. And the piano's 16th notes leading up to this point are the same notes that it has been playing, just slower. This transition takes us into a very different sounding section that is in fact marked at a slower tempo now, so the whole thing was really just helping to ease us into that. So it's really interesting to see from this very focused analysis how much we can learn about a piece and about a work as a whole from just looking at one measure and how it affects and is affected by the measures around it. And also gives credit to Dvorak as an amazing composer in that he can really bring in all sorts of musical elements throughout his entire piece that we can see literally in every measure of the piece. Absolutely. So we hope that you have enjoyed this different approach to music analysis with this lovely little work from our pal Dvorak. And as always, we always hope you enjoy listening to The Coffee House and personally for me, a very heartfelt thank you to everybody who has listened, to everybody who has shared us and helped us grow. 
and everybody who continues to download our little classical music podcast every Sunday morning. Aww. <laughs> Thank you, Coffee House patrons. Thank you so much. <laughs> if you did enjoy this episode, once again, please like and subscribe to us on Google Play or on Podbean, wherever you happen to be listening to us. Toss us a follow if you are on Spotify. Share us with a friend who might be likewise inclined. For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. For 100 episodes. Wow. Also Sprock Zarathustra was performed by the University of Chicago Orchestra, conducted by Barbara Schubert. The Sonatina Opus 100 was performed by F. Luzanti and G.M. Spuria. You can find The Coffeehouse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. Music